<laughs> okay, we can finally start. So when we left on Friday, we were talking about cytotoxic T cells. And we were talking about how the cytotoxic T cells are going to be turned into cytotoxic T lymphocytes. Right? The cytotoxic T cell, when it leaves the thymus, it's ready to differentiate to being a cytotoxic T cell. It's going to start as a cytotoxic cell precursor, and it's going to go down some differentiation steps to get to be a cytotoxic T lymphocyte. Cytotoxic T lymphocytes, we had the, the same two or three signals. And when we talked about T helper cells being activated, cytotoxic T cells, since their lymphocytes need the same sort of signals to become activated, they are there to destroy. Once they become activated, they're going to destroy the target cell that they were activated from. They are going to be able to kill it in an antigen-specific way, right? So only target cells with the same class MHC1 molecule and the associated antigen that triggered that cytotoxic T lymphocyte precursor to turn into a cytotoxic T lymphocyte is the cell that's going to be able to die. That's the cell that's going to get killed. And we talked about a bunch of different steps, and we saw a bunch of different pretty pictures. And now we're going to get to the other cytotoxic cell or the other killing cell. We've talked a little bit about neutrophils as a killing cell, macrophage as a killing cell, but when we're talking about acquired immunity and we're talking about T lymphocytes themselves, the other cytotoxic cell is the natural killer cell or the NK cell. If you remember, when we started talking about lymphocytes, we were talking about B cells and T cells, and then there was another group of cells that were called the non-T, non-B, or the null cell. Right? looked histologically just like a lymphocyte. Again, they're called null cells or large granular lymphocytes because they are a little bit bigger than a sort of normal-looking lymphocyte, normal-looking B cell or a T cell. Makes up about 5 to 10 percent of the recirculating lymphocyte population. So at any one point in time, right, 10 percent of the cells are going to be large granular lymphocytes. They're a heterogeneous population because some of them may be activated or non-activated at any one point in time. They are lymphocyte-like cells, but the major difference and the thing that's unique about NK cells is that they're going to be able to kill targets in the absence of prior sensitization. So, before we had all these certain, you know, checkpoints, we needed signal number one and signal number two and proliferation signal number three. We needed the activation signal, the differentiation signal, right? We had all these different things that were in play because we were talking about the acquired immune system and we needed to be able to recognize the MHC molecule and we needed to be able to recognize the peptide. No more, right? NK cells, we throw that out on, the, on its head. And the reason we're going to do this is because we're coming back again to a point in that timeline. Right? NK cells are going to be able to decide, right? they don't have human-like characteristics, they're not going to be able to decide, but there are mechanisms in place that are going to allow an NK cell to recognize a virally infected cell or a tumor cell and that NK cell is going to be able to kill that cell almost immediately. 
when we talked about the CTLs, we talked about the CTL precursors, when we talked about those cytotoxic T cells, we said it was going to take anywhere from 7 to 10 days right, to be able to have that naive cytotoxic T cell, that CD8 positive T cell, about a week or so before it's going to be able to go back and destroy that virally infected cell. We need a mechanism so that we're not going to be able to do that. We need to be able to kill that virally infected cell almost immediately. If we waited a week to start killing those virally infected cells, we'd be a virus. Right? The virus would probably have destroyed us in that week. We need a way to be able to respond immediately. We had it when we were talking about complement in terms of C3 and C3 tickover. We have it when we're talking about phagocytosis, when we talk about right, natural or naive phagocytosis rather than immune-mediated phagocytosis. We don't want to have to wait around for those antibody molecules to coat the invader so that immune-mediated phagocytosis can take place. We're going to have the ability to recognize and destroy an invader almost instantly. And it's the NK cell that's going to give us the ability to do that. So when we're talking about NK cells, NK cells are one of our first-line defenses, right, in terms of the cellular immune response against viral infections. Right? This is how terrified we are of viruses. As it turns out, on the cellular level are the NK cells, and on the secreted level are the interferons. We've already talked about interferon gamma, right? but there are two other members of the interferon family, interferon alpha and interferon beta. Right? And they are the first lines of defense for the secreted immune response against viral infections. So alpha and beta are very much related to each other. They're almost indistinguishable. Right? In terms of their sequence identity, it's almost 80% identical between alpha and beta. Interferon gamma, sort of a distant cousin of the interferon family. If you need, if you are going to compare protein sequences and you want to say that proteins are related to each other, they need to be at least 25% identical. Interferon gamma is about 25% identical to interfere on alpha and beta. It's a very distant member, but they are related to each other. Right? So when gamma has an effect on stimulating macrophages, where gamma is going to be released by T cells to stimulate macrophages, alpha and beta have no effect on macrophages. Right? Alpha and beta have an effect on the cells themselves, on most any cell inside the body. So when we talk about viral defenses, well, we can look at this chart. So this is, doesn't matter. This is whatever any of these graphs are, going from nothing to infinity. And here we're talking about days after the viral infection. So the important thing that we're looking at here is the viral titer. So this is the light blue out here. So right, you're sitting on the train, you breathe in that sneeze, takes about a day, and the virus really starts to go to town. In terms of the cellular response, we've talked about the CTL cells. So here's your exposed to the virus, and then out here, you know, by day five, six, or seven, we're not even at the top, right? So here's a week later, 
that the CTLs are now in present and starting to knock down the viral titer, right? We're going to go from no virus to a whole bunch of virus to no virus again, or at least that's what we're hoping for. That would be a, 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 an immune outcome that we all would like to see take place. So five, six, seven days later, those CTLs are now in play and they're starting to destroy virally infected cells. The NK cells are responding almost immediately, right? They're responding here within, I don't know, what do you want to call this, a day? Within 24 hours, 18 hours or so. So their peak, they're going to peak at like day three or four. And by day three or four, that's when the CTL cells are now coming in line to be able to take out the virus. So the NK cells are peaking, the virus is peaking, and once the NK cells get there and the CTLs get there, the virus is going to start to fall. The other thing that you'll notice, that almost instantly what's taking place here, is that interferon alpha <coughs> and interferon beta are being released. And interferon alpha and interferon beta are the viral cytokines. Right? Interferon alpha is going to stimulate interferon alpha receptors on neighboring cells. So when this cell or these series of cells that have been infected with this virus are infected with the virus and they realized it, well they're not going to realize it, but there are mechanisms in place to be able to release interferon alpha and interferon beta from those virally infected cells. Once cells in the neighborhood are able to recognize that interferon alpha and interferon beta, that's a danger signal. So those interferon receptors on neighboring cells are going to be increasing. They're going to increase the amount of MHC molecules in the area, right? That's a response that an interferon alpha or an interferon beta stimulated cell is going to have, right? We're going to put more MHC class 1 molecules on the surface because we want to start displaying more peptides on the surface, right? This is the sort of the neon sign that's going to be able to tell the NK cells and the CTLs to be able to destroy those cells. So interferon alpha and interferon beta is going to stimulate a, a response of those cells to these cells that are in the process of being infected or infected. Interferon alpha and interferon beta, when it stimulates those naming cells, are going to increase the synthesis of molecules or genes that are going to cause destruction of messenger RNA. We don't care that we're making our own messenger RNA for sort of our household gene, right? Our household proteins that we need to survive day to day. We're infected with a virus. We're going to shut down all mRNA synthesis. It's part of the, the apoptotic pathway. We're going to shut down all mRNA synthesis. And we're also going to inhibit translation of proteins. We're going to do everything we can to stop making proteins. Because most of the proteins that we're making, we are now a viral factory, so most of the proteins we're making are viral proteins. Again, we don't care that we're shutting down proteins that we need as these cells to be able to live. We need to get rid of those viral invaders as, as quickly as we can. Right? Interferon Synthesis itself is going to be stimulated by double-stranded RNA, and a lot of viruses are double-stranded RNA viruses. So once the interior of the cell, once proteins inside the cell are able to detect 
double-stranded RNA or double-stranded DNA, that's going to be able to send out a pulse of interferon gamma to all the neighboring cells. Right? So the interferon gamma, right, so this interferon gamma, it's doing a whole bunch of different things. It's going to induce resistance to viral replication. There's increasing class 1 expression. Activate dendritic cells and macrophages to be able to come in and participate in destroying things. And it's going to activate NK cells to kill virally infected cells. So this is our defense against viruses. So NK cells are there in the very beginning, not as quickly as interferon alpha and beta are being part of the response, but clearly they are the first part of the cellular response, and they are there to be able to be a stopgap measure until the CTLs can be, uh, the CTLs are now activated and brought online. Once the NK cells are here, once the CTLs are here, the viral titer is going down because we're killing more and more and more cells, more and more normal cells that are infected with the virus. And that's the way we're going to be able to destroy the virus. That's the way we're going to overcome this viral infection. So we have interferon gamma and the NK cells themselves. So NK cells, they're a wacky little group of cells. Even though they are T-cell-like, even though they are clearly lymphocytes, right, they appear to be T-cell receptor negative, CD3 negative. They're CD16 positive. That's a marker for an NK cell. CD16 is a low affinity FC receptor. So anything, right, it's the particular FC receptor that appears on the surface of NK cells. In terms of their development, it seems to bypass the thymus. We can find NK cells in nude mice. And when we talked about nude mice, nude mice don't have a thymus. They don't have T cells. They don't have T helper cells. They don't have cytotoxic T cells. But they do have NK cells. There's some evidence to suggest that some NK cells are T cell, uh, do have a T cell receptor on their cell surface. Right? So it's hard to know exactly at what point in the immune response T cell receptor positive NK cells are, T cell receptor negative NK cells. Right? Clearly we can find them out in the periphery. 10% of the lymphocytes are going to be NK cells. Right? We just aren't so sure about where they come from or how they populate these areas. Since they are T cell receptor negative and CD3 negative, that means that they aren't going to be able to recognize right, peptides in the MHC class 1 molecules because they don't have a T cell receptor. They're not able to do that. What they do do is they employ, they employ a totally unique cell-mediated method of recognition and destruction of cells. They have on their cell surface a series of activation receptors or inhibitory receptors. Now all these receptors are just starting to be recognized and starting to be uh, investigated. So on the surface of a normal cell, right, let's call a normal cell first, let's take a look and see what's taking place. We have an inhibitory receptor and an activation receptor on the surface of the NK cell. When this normal cell is displaying a class 1 molecule and whatever the other ligand is for the activation receptor, the overriding signal here is the negative receptor, the negative receptor signal. 
It means leave the cell alone. So when the MHC class 1 molecule is on the surface, leave it alone. Don't kill anything. On the other hand, if there's some ligand, right, they don't, they don't have like sort of full information here. If there's a ligand on the surface of the virally infected cell, that this inhibitory receptor, right, is going to be able to recognize, or the activation receptor is going to be able to recognize, then the negative receptor is overpowered by the positive receptor and the killing will take place. Another thing that can happen on the surface of a virally infected cell, which is going to have an effect on NK cells, is one of the things that the virus is trying to do, even though the cell is trying to put more MHC molecules on the cell surface, the virus is, is, down, right, is downloading the MHC class 1 molecules to not allow them to be on the surface. So that's a response that the virus is trying to pull on the cell, getting rid of the MHC class 1 molecule. The same thing happens on the surface of a tumor cell. When a cell transforms and turns into a tumor cell, MHC class 1 molecules on the surface disappear because we don't want those peptides presented. If we're the virus or we're that tumor cell, we don't want the altered peptide on the MHC class 1 molecule of that tumor cell displayed to activate NK cells or to activate CTLs. So when that inhibitory receptor isn't activated by an MHC class 1 molecule, there is no inhibitory signal. There is only the positive, the activation signal, and now the NK cell is going to be able to kill that cell. Right? So it's a unique sort of mechanism. Right? So we have the, act the activating receptor and the inhibitory receptor. Right? If this is an activating ligand that this cell is going to display, then the activating receptor is going to be able to interact with it, and that's going to be able to cause the NK cell to kill the cell. A totally unique, we didn't know anything about this mechanism about 10 years ago. And now, right, there are numerous inhibitory receptors that are being characterized and a whole bunch of activating receptors on the cell surface of NK cells that are being characterized right now as well. Right? Clearly, we want to try to use these as therapeutic agents. Right? If we could figure out a way to be able to send an inhibitory signal, then this NK cell isn't going to be able to recognize this, right, this foreign cell if it's a transplant, or if we have some sort of activation signal and be able to figure out what this tumor cell is displaying that this NK cell needs to be able to destroy it, then we might have an anti-tumor agent on our hands. Right? But right now, a lot of basic sort of cell biology is going into characterizing these receptors on the surface of the NK cells. The NK cells are found in skid mice, right, what are called skid mice, severe combined immunodeficiency mice. They develop from a lineage distinct from T cells, either that or they develop from a common progenitor prior to rearrangement of the T cell receptor genes. If they're not going into the thymus, 
Right? They're not rearranging their T-cell receptors. If they're not rearranging their T-cell receptors and they get into the thymus, they're going to be destroyed. So they're probably, not in, they're probably not making their way into the thymus, so they're probably leaving the bone marrow as NK cells. But there are some studies to suggest that NK cells are inside the thymus and they are coming out on the other side as NK cells. A lot of conflicting data is out there at this point in time, and it's just going to be a while till you know, people figure out what's taking place. In terms of the way in which the NK cells are going to be able to destroy, the mechanisms are almost identical to what we talked about with the CTL cells. There's going to be binding and recognition, not binding of the T cell receptor. It's going to be binding of those inhibitory receptors or those activation receptors. Right? It's going to be able to trigger the NK cell, NK cell will deliver the lethal hit, and then the NK cell is going to be on its way. Right? It's going to be able to destroy the cell and move on to another cell. The things that are regulating NK cell activity right, are the fact we just talked about tumor cells and virally infected cells generally express a lower level of MHC class 1 molecule, so that's a big tip-off. So it's as if the, the, the virally infected cell and the tumor cells are trying to avoid the CTLs, and the response of that avoidance of the CTLs by, down, right, by downgrading the amount of MHC on the cell surface is going to be picked up and recognized by the NK cells. So it's almost as if right, the, viral, the virus has evolved a defense against the CTLs, and we are using the NK cells to be able to play against that evolution. Right? So we have those NK cells present to be able to detect low levels of MHC class 1 cells so they'll be able to be destroyed. We're able to start to pick apart and characterize conserved self-peptides in MHC class 1, and if they're replaced with that non-self peptide, then killing is going to be uh, stimulated by the NK cells and the CTL cells. And in terms of NK cells, there's no memory response to an NK cell. Right? An NK cell is going to be able to respond over and over and over again. Right? There's no memory there because the memory is not coming through the T cell receptors. The memory is coming through those activation receptors and those inhibitory receptors. So just like we talked about macrophages being able to go out and phagocytose right, an invader every single time without any sort of a memory, the same thing's happening for these NK cells. They're going to be able to recognize low MHC class 1. They're going to be able to recognize ligands. They're going to activate their, their activation receptors. So there's no memory response. So the NK cells and the CTL cells sort of work hand in hand together. And that's the one right there. So, right? Has a T cell receptor, has a CD3 molecule, absolutely on a CTL. Is MHC restricted? Yes. No for the NK cell. Thigh 1, right? NK cells also have Thigh 1. That's why people think that they probably go to the thymus, but there's enough information on the other side to suggest that they don't. Right? All lymphocytes have CD2, so this puts right, the NK cell as a lymphocyte, as a T-cell-like cell. 
CD8 on the cell surface, be able to recognize those MHC class 1 molecules. CD16, right, are, is, are some of those activation receptors. It's going to be uh, stimulated by antigen activation. NK cell doesn't need it, right? They are lymphocytes, so they're both going to be able to respond to interleukin-2, right? T-cell growth factor. Yes, we have granules that contain perforin. Absolutely, they both have this, the same mechanism. So those killing mechanisms we talked about for the CTLs are also in effect for the NK cells. And in terms of memory, right, these, are, these are being able to be effector cells and memory cells, and they're going to be stored as memory cells. Not so much for the NK cells, right? They are not memory cells. They are going to be there every single time, time after time, when these NK cells are able to recognize the invader. Okay, so that's where we should have been. Let's talk about what we're going to talk about today. So, still looking at cell-mediated immunity, right? We can still have another examples of cell-mediated immunity that are taking place inside the body, okay? A major one is called antibody-dependent cell-mediated cytotoxicity, or ADCC. So this one is going to be a little bit different, right? We need to have an antibody molecule present. So if we're talking about antibody molecules, we're talking more about the specific aspect of the immune system. So ADCC is going to fit into that sort of way in which we're going to be able to bring together the specific and the innate responses of the immune system. So when an antibody is specifically bound to a target cell, at that point in time, right, FC receptor positive cells, so Every cell that we're going to talk about that's going to be able to participate in the ADCC is going to have an FC receptor on its cell surface. So these cells are going to be able to bind and cause lysis of the target cell. Even though a lot of the cells are going to be nonspecific cells, because they have an FC receptor on the cell surface and they're able to recognize the antibody that's bound to a target cell, they are going to be able to participate in the destruction of that target cell. So it's only going to occur when the target cell is coated with antibody molecules. Right? So again, this isn't something that's going to happen relatively quickly in the response. Right? We need to have those antibody molecules in place. So it is going to take a couple of days for an ADCC reaction to be able to take place. And even though the cytotoxic cells are nonspecific, the specificity of the antibody and the interaction of the antibody and the FC receptor on the surface of that nonspecific cytotoxic cell is going to direct them to this specific, and it's going to sort of turn them into specific cells, right? But it's going to be, allow them to participate in this specific reaction with the antibody molecules. And as it turns out, we haven't talked a lot about eosinophils, but eosinophil antibody-dependent cell-mediated cytotoxicity is probably a major mechanism in the elimination of parasitic worms, right? When we talked about eosinophils, we said that they were a major cell getting in the elimination of parasitic worms. And this is how it's going to work. 
it's going to work by an ADCC-like mechanism. So again, if we're looking at a target cell, and this target cell could be a worm, this target cell could be a tumor cell, this target cell could be another cell that is presenting antigens that antibody is going to be able to bind to. Right? So this wouldn't be something that is you know, taking place during a normal immune response. This might be taking place during an autoimmune reaction. When we talk about autoimmunity, we'll talk about ADCC. But the fact remains that a neutrophil is an FC receptor positive cell, an NK cell right, is FC receptor positive. That's what that uh, CD marker was. Macrophages have the FC molecules on the cell surface, eosinophils. Right? So when these FC receptors are able to recognize the antibody molecule itself, they're going to release, right, in this instance here, we're showing lytic enzymes and perforin and TNF and granzyme. We're going to release all of these different sort of uh, chemical mediators. Again, we're talking about having right, large contact areas. This is, again, one of those sort of handshaking sort of cartoons. But we need it to show, right, that the neutrophils are going to be able to release their lytic enzymes, eosinophils, going to release perforin and lytic enzymes. The macrophages, again, can release TNF. And uh, clearly, the NK cells can release everything from the granules that are inside their cytoplasm. Right? So we have all of these nonspecific cells. Right? We haven't said, we haven't, when we gave examples of nonspecific cells, these are the nonspecific cells we gave examples of. And they're turning into this specific reaction because their FC receptors are able to recognize the antibody molecule. Okay? So, at this point, I mean, it's sort of interesting to look at some of the experimental protocols that were done to investigate cytotoxicity reactions. We're talking about the ability of these cells to destroy virally infected cells. How was it that we came to these conclusions, that we came to see that these reactions were taking place? So it started probably in the mid-70s to the late 1970s where, again, tissue culture had gotten to the point where we have homogeneous populations of cells. So we have dishes full of T cells and we have dishes, right, all full of all the cells of the immune response that are homogeneously, they wouldn't be homogeneously, they are homogeneous, right? So we're going to have dishes of T cells, we have dishes of B cells, we have dishes of T helper cells, and we're going to have dishes of eosinophils or dishes of neutrophils, right? That we're going to be able to grow inside the incubator and start an experiment by adding two populations of cells together. So one of the first reactions that took place, or one of the first experiments that were done, was called the mixed lymphocyte reaction. And in the MLR, right, we're going to take lymphocytes from two different inbred strains, so they're going to be cultured together. So we're going to add lymphocytes from strain A and lymphocytes from strain B into the same dish. Right, so we're going to mix them up. So it means strain B T-cells are going to be able to recognize the foreign MHC antigen on strain A cells, 
and strain A lymphocytes are going to be able to recognize the non-self MHC molecules on strain B. So the cells are going to be able to proliferate in response to those antigenic differences between each other. Man, we can start, we can see this taking place. Right? We can, if we know that we're adding a thousand cells all together, if we come back in a couple of days and we do another cell count, maybe we're going to see 1,200 cells, maybe we're going to see 1,500 cells. Right? The cells are responding to those non-self MHC molecules. Right? That strain A are recognizing the strain B's and strain B's are recognizing the strain A's. What we can do is we can add right, labeled thymidine and measure proliferation. So what we're going to do is we're going to add a radioactive right, precursor to DNA. Thymidine is a precursor of thiamine. The only way that thymidine is going to be incorporated into DNA or the radioactive label of thymidine is if thymidine enters right, the production of thiamine and as that radio labeled tracer is incorporated into DNA that's going to give us a measure of proliferation. A lot of people don't like to use right, thymidine labeling as a measure of proliferation because it's not really a measure of proliferation. It's a measure of increased DNA synthesis. But increased DNA synthesis is needed for proliferation. Right? So the purists out there right, usually take the cells and count the cells to make sure they're proliferating. But everybody else in the world does a, right, does a, a radioactive thymidine incorporation proliferation assay. So we're going to be able to see increased amount of radiation in the, the cells themselves, and that's going to give us a measure of proliferation. But what this doesn't do for us is it doesn't really look at the specificity of the reaction. This just shows us that these cells are proliferating. It doesn't tell us if the strain A cells are proliferating, doesn't tell us if the strain B, well, it does. It could tell us, well, it does. It, it will tell us that both strain A's and strain B's are proliferating. So what does that do for us? Big deal. Just got a bunch of cells proliferating inside a dish, right? We need a way to be able to use this as an experimental assay of cytotoxicity. And what we're going to do is we're going to modify this setup a little bit. And we're going to measure the proliferation of a single population. And it's called the one-way mixed lymphocyte reaction. And what we're going to do is we're going to treat one of those lymphocyte populations, it doesn't matter, either strain A or strain B, we're going to treat one of those populations with an agent that's going to be able to stop proliferation. Okay? And there are a bunch of different agents that we can use. We could use x-rays, we could take our our, our, our petri dish, right, with our strain A lymphocytes and expose them to x-rays. And the x-rays are going to be there. And we know the dose of x-rays that we would need to be able to stop these cells from proliferating. It's basically the dose that it's going to take to kill the cells. But the cells aren't going to die, <clears throat> right, for a couple of weeks. Well, probably a couple of days. They'll die within a week. But in the meantime, those x-rays will have broken up DNA, and the cells are going to die because they're not going to be able to make proteins. 
because they're not going to be able to find the genes, they're not going to be able to make messenger RNA because the DNA has been destroyed. Right? So that's going to be one agent that stops proliferation. And another agent right, that we use is an agent that's called mitomycin C. And mitomycin C is a DNA poison. It stops certain key enzymes in the synthesis of proteins that are involved in DNA synthesis. So if we turn off the synthesis of those proteins, we're going to turn off right, the ability to be able to make more and more DNA. So these cells, the cells that we're treating with the agents, are called the stimulators. Right? Because they're not going to be able to respond, they're only going to be able to stimulate the other cells. And the other cell populations are now called the responders, right? Because they're going to be able to respond, because their DNA, their, their whole you know, sort of molecular pathways are all intact. So we have the two dishes, we treat one dish with mitomycin C, right? We wash out all the mitomycin C, it doesn't matter, right? We want to get rid of the mitomycin C we will have exposed those cells to mitomycin C for long enough to be able to make sure that it's going to be able to work. We wash out all the unincorporated mitomycin C and then we can add both cells together. So the stimulators are going to be able to still, right, they're still breathing and they're still doing everything they're supposed to do, but they're not able to make proteins and they're not able to proliferate. So they are stimulating all of that other cells, right, the other cell populations, and those cells are going to be able to respond appropriately, so they are the responders themselves. So, right, if we take strain X and we take strain Y, so we're going to go out, we're going to isolate the spleen, we're going to get the lymphocytes from the spleen, that's a, a quick and easy way to get lymphocytes, these are the responders. Strain Y, those lymphocytes, we're either going to treat with x-rays or mitomycin C, we're going to add them together, do a regular mixed lymphocyte reaction. But here, it's a one-way mixed lymphocyte reaction because these ones aren't able to participate at all in, this, in, the, in the responses. So anything we're able to get down here in terms of right, looking at proliferation by looking at that radio label being incorporated into the DNA are all coming from those responder cells. So everything we're able to look at now is coming from those responders. So now that we have this whole cell culture situation going, right, we can start to look at the responses of right, those responding cells themselves. So we're going to do the same experiment again. right? We're going to add our responders to our stimulators. We're going to start our stopwatch. And we're going to start looking for changes that are taking place. So within 24 to 48 hours, we can see the proliferation response that are taking place by the responders. By about three days or so, 72 hours to 96, three to four days later, we can start to see those CTLs being generated. Right? We can see, we can investigate the, the CTL precursor, those, right, those cytotoxic T cells, being activated and turning into CTL cells. We're going to be able to do this totally in vitro, totally in our, in our Petri dishes, right? We have absolute control over this experiment. This is how we know about right, the cells themselves. This is how we know about how CTLs are formed and how long it takes a CTL to perform, right? 
We can add other cells. We could add dendritic cells. We could add macrophages. Right? We can have all sorts of different cells into our cultures as long as we keep one cell as the responder and all the other cells as the stimulators. Right? We're going to treat any other cell that we put in there with mitomycin C. So we could add dendritic cells. We could add macrophages. Right? We can see what those cells, right? they're still able to secrete cytokines. So we're going to be able to see the, the, the effect of those cytokines. We can show involvement of other cell types. We can add antibodies. If we add antibodies to CD4, if we add antibodies to CD8, we could add different cytokines to the reaction. We could add interleukin-2. We could add interferon gamma. Right? We can look at the breakdown of these proliferation and these assays by almost any addition that we want to put into these culture supernatants and see their effect of these lymphocytes. So that's one way in which we're going to be able to look at cytotoxicity. Another way we're going to be able to do it is by looking at the cytotoxic reaction, the cytotoxic reaction itself. And we're going to do an assay here that's called the cell-mediated lympholysis assay, or the CML assay. The CML assay, right, is a system to understand the mechanism of killing by CTLs or any other cytotoxic cell. We could, right, put in eosinophils. We could use this as an ADCC model. We could look at NK cells. We could look at CTL cells. We could see how other cells are able to participate in, right, a cytolysis assay. Only in this case, we're going to be looking at lymphocytes themselves. So what we're going to do here is, one population of cells is going to be labeled with radioactive chromium, for example. There are a bunch of other markers we could use, but if we're going to do a chromium label, so we're going to add sodium chromate, and sodium chromate, it's a sodium salt of radio-labeled chromium, and sodium chromate is able to freely move across the cell membrane because right, it is a salt, it's able to move across the membrane, and what sodium chromate does is binds non-specifically to proteins. So this is how we're going to label the targets. Anything we want to be as a target, we're going to incubate with sodium chromate. So the sodium chromate is going to be able to cross the cell membrane. It's going to bind to non-specifically non the cells in, non, sorry, the proteins inside the cell. We're going to wait a little while, and then we're going to wash away all the sodium chromate, right? All the sodium chromate right, that's not been incorporated, that's still in the extracellular fluids. We're going to wash them a couple of times, and what we're going to have at the end of the day is our target cells are going to be non-specifically labeled, right? All the proteins that are inside are going to be non-specifically labeled with radioactive chromium. So we basically have a bag of chromium-labeled, right, proteins. And that's going to be our target cells themselves. And then once we have these target cells, Right? And the target cells, like I said before, when we looked at all the cells, they can be normal cells, they could be immune cells, they could be tumor cells, they can be parasitic worms, anything that we want to be able to, to, to label. 
and then we're going to add those respondent cells and we're going to measure the lysis by measuring the amount of chromium that's being released. So, right, one of the, so this would be chromium, this could be time, right, this is no chromium. So this could be a chart that we're looking at. So, over time, right, the chromium's probably going to be released. This is our control. Some of these proteins are going to be secreted proteins. So some of this chromium is going to be starting to build up inside our supernatant fluid. So we're going to get a little bit of drift here with a lot, with some of this radioactive chromium appearing in our supernatant fluid. But in our experimental, right, that's probably what we're looking at, right? As more and more and more of these lymphocytes, or they could be macrophages, or they could be, right, some ADCC experiment. As more and more of these cells are participating in the lysis of these cells, right, and more and more chromium comes flooding out of these cells and starts appearing in our supernatant, right, we can see the effect in terms of time of our cells that we're adding to be able to lyse those cells on the cells themselves. And again, we can do all sorts of different things here. We could add antibodies, right, to the FC receptor to block interaction of antibodies that are coding a target cell to be able to see what effect that could have on ADCC. We could add antibodies to CD4, we could add antibodies to CD8, we could add all sorts of different antibodies, we could add all sorts of different cells here. These could be normal cells, these could be tumor cells, doesn't matter what kind of cell it is, right, we have this very specific assay now to be able to measure cytotoxicity reactions. Right. So, here we could take, these are virally infected cells. We're going to add this chromium label to these virally infected cells. We're going to take these cells and add them now to this strain, right? So we take strain Y infected cells to strain X. Strain X should be able to destroy the strain Y cells. We're going to be able to see these strain Y cells being destroyed by the amount of chromium that's going to be able to be turned up inside the supernatant fluid. Right, so these are how these studies got done. This is how we learned about cytolysis. This is how we, whoa, holy moly. This is how we learned about all these different things. Okay, but you don't care about any of this stuff because you want to get your test back and you want to get to neurobiology. So, <laughs> all right, just like before, the average grade on this test was a 78. Right, so whatever, yeah. right, whatever you got, if you got an 80, you got a B. If you got a 70, you got a C. How about A through C right here? How about D through D through L right here? How about M and everybody else right there?
Excuse me. Oh. Excuse me.